Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. I have um, with me... um, Dr. Jadon Abbott. Uh, Dr. Abbott is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine of Brown University. She is also the Interventional Cardiology Program Director at uh, Rhode Island Hospital of Brown Medical School, both in Providence and Rhode Island. Uh, Dr. Abbott, welcome to the show. Hello. Welcome. Happy to be here. Um, sure. Thanks for making the time. Uh, and I want to congratulate uh, both you and Rian Davies for putting together an excellent paper for U.S. Cardiology Review. Uh, the paper is titled Percutaneous Coronary Intervention Developments in the Last 12 Months. And there have been um, a lot of developments in the field uh, over the past 12 months. And we're going to talk about a lot of those studies and trials and, you know, uh, pick your brains and uh, also your expert opinion on what you think about these studies. So we'll just dive in right away. Uh, the first study which uh, you've written about uh, in the paper is uh, a study which was heavily um, debated and also um, received a lot of uh, lay press, uh, you know, particularly the New York Times article, which uh, made the headlines and caused a lot of controversy. Uh, I'm referring to um, Rasha Alami's orbital trial um, so why don't you um, tell the listeners a little bit about that study? Sure. Um, Orbita was certainly a landmark trial in that it was the first uh, sham-controlled PCI trial uh, that's been done, uh, which is to great credit of the investigators. Uh, the patients um, were uh, blinded to, they had access performed and were blinded to whether a PCI or sham procedure was done. About 200 patients were involved in the study, and all the angiograms were published, which showed, uh, you know, the majority had clearly angiographically significant lesions. Uh, At the completion of the study, at six weeks, the study did not show a benefit to PCI, uh, which was, I think, a surprise to the investigators. Uh, But they acknowledged the limitations that these patients were uh, quite stable at the time of enrollment because they had been optimized on medical therapy, had very low levels of inducible ischemia by uh, multiple um, pre-procedural stress methods, including uh, stress echocardiography. And um, also the duration of follow-up was quite short. It was only six weeks. So we really can't speak to whether these patients would have remained stable over a longer period of time. Uh, One thing I think is quite interesting about the sham control trial is that uh, while there can be a perceived uh, benefit to um, 
getting a procedure you don't get. There can also be a perceived harm. And one of the concerns uh, that was brought up is that if patients are unaware if they received the stent or not, they may be uncomfortable um, performing um, the assessments like stress testing during the follow-up period because they don't want to push themselves. It's like a reverse bias <laughs> in my mind. So those were all very interesting aspects of the trial. I think the take-home messages are we need to talk to our patients more about their symptoms. We need to understand whether their symptoms are due to epicardial coronary disease or other forms of angina. And I think this does allow us to be a little more conservative uh, when we have patients that are very similar to those enrolled in the trial. I think we have to caution against uh, extrapolating these results to patients with unstable angina or um, uh, progressive anginal symptoms that may um, accelerate into myocardial infarction, also those with multivessel disease or larger burdens of ischemia. Um, yes, th that was an excellent summary. You know, I, I personally thought the trial was very well conducted. It was provocative. Um, it, like you said, it was the first time um, a sham-controlled PCI trial was performed. And, and as you said, the follow-up was only six weeks. Um, you know, when I initially read the study, uh, you know, I said to myself, you know, would I actually take these patients to the cath lab at, at the first place? Because a lot of these patients hit, you know, Bruce stage three on the exercise treadmill test, as you mentioned as well. Um, what would you what would you say about that? Uh, well, I agree. There's probably some variation in care. I do think overall um, uh, there probably are a lot of similar patients that do make it to the cath lab, either uh, because they have typical symptoms and don't have uh, pre-procedural stress testing, um, or uh, at times we see patients referred in from non-interventional um, physicians. So. I think we have to account for all um, severities of both clinical symptoms and ischemia extent when we're evaluating people in the lab. And so one approach is to use, you know, invasive hemodynamics to augment our decision making. And as you know, in Orbita, they did um, um, perform hemodynamic measurements, but these were not sure. provided to the operators, like decisions weren't made based on them. And as you know, in retrospect, I believe about 24% of lesions were not ischemia uh, causing that uh, were entered into this trial and potentially randomized to PCI. So I think as <laughs> with all things we, we consider, the more information we have about the patient, the better um, the patient's going to do in the long run. Sure. Um, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for that summary. Moving on to the next study, which um, you've described uh, in the manuscript. Um, and for the listeners, the paper is available uh, on uh, issue 13.1 of U.S. Cardiology Review. Uh, the next paper is um, um, culprit shock um, PCI. So uh, essentially percutaneous coronary intervention in patients who uh, present with an acute coronary syndrome and are in cardiogenic shock. Uh, and this was uh, looking at uh, patients who were randomized to either the culprit vessel only versus multivessel PCI, which was, you know, supposedly what the guidelines uh, recommended uh, and was considered standard of care uh, in, in patients who presented with uh, an acute coronary syndrome and were in cardiogenic shock. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, that study that uh, Holger Thiele uh, presented? Sure. Um well, the 30-day endpoints were 
uh, presented in 2017, and more recently, the one-year outcomes uh, were presented in 2018, and that's uh, what we're focusing on. I think it's important, of course, the primary outcome at 30 days favors the culprit only with uh, decreased rates of death, recurrent infarction, and need for renal replacement therapy. I think having one-year outcomes is really critical and understanding uh, what happens to these patients that um, uh, don't get complete revascularization. And the key was from um, at the end of one year, there was still no overall benefit in death or MI to the early um, multi-vessel revascularization approach. However, um, uh, out to one year, one out of three patients in the culprit-only group required revascularization. And there was also a significant increase in admissions for heart failure in that group that was incompletely revascularized. So I think the take-home messages from the one-year results are that once the patient stabilizes from shock, okay, we know the mortality is very high, uh, but in the subset that stabilized, we should pay uh, close attention to, you know, assessing them for more complete revascularization. And whether that be staged PCI or cabbage is unclear, but I think just continuing medical therapy alone based on the initial revascularization strategy is really not the way to go. Um, I think one other thing, if we just want to go back to the initial results, um, I, I thought the investigators did a great job trying to achieve complete revascularization, but in doing so, they did tackle some very complex chronic um, coronary disease, including CTO intervention in the setting of um, cardiogenic shock. And patients did have, you know, state-of-the-art hemodynamic support and ECMO if needed. So I feel like they were cared for in a contemporary manner. Uh, but it's unclear whether, you know, there are subsets of patients with multi-vessel disease that would have achieved benefit without harm, you know, in the acute setting such as those with, you know, very straightforward, late type A lesions in proximal vessels. So as a whole, we can say the strategy of, you know, all comers, total revascularization is not beneficial, but still as an operator caring for a lot of these patients, I do wonder if, um, you know, there are subsets we should continue to study. And certainly if you're unclear about what the culprit vessel is or you think there's more than one culprit, then there may be exceptions and you should perform multi-vessel PCI in those settings. Sure. So, you know, just talking about staging the, the procedure, would you typically stage it uh, in index hospitalization or would you stabilize discharge and see them as follow-up and then schedule it as an elective uh, procedure? What was your, what would be your typical approach here? Um, in my practice, I do both. Okay. And it really depends on if there's any spontaneous um, or provoked ischemia during the hospitalization that would warrant a pre-discharge uh, revascularization. Also, on the patient's comorbidities, the complexity of the PCI. Typically, if it's a CTO, I would not do that in-house because I do feel like there's a benefit from waiting until the microvasculature recovers, vasospasm recovers. You can um, have a lot easier time in that type of complex procedure. So a lot of factors are in mind, but I think the key is to uh, do something and not just um, prescribe medical therapy, that if you're going to um, uh, consider a delay in revascularization, then uh, certainly uh, doing some sort of risk stratification or if the patient has ongoing symptoms, that's probably not even necessary. But 
certainly they should have some form of, of evaluation post-discharge if they're not completely revascularized. Sure. Um, so switching gears from a PCI and cardiogenic shock to actually unloading the left ventricle, this is um, the trial that Naveen Kapoor presented, uh, which looked at infarct size and, uh, and uh, the door to unload time. Um, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about that trial and what you think about um, you know, mechanical circulatory support and unloading the left ventricle in general prior to attempting to open the culprit vessel? What are your thoughts about that, and what do you think about the study that Naveen uh, presented? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's animal data to support unloading to reduce infarction size. And certainly that can be done mechanically with a device like Impella, but it also can be done um, pharmacologically by drugs even as simple as, you know, beta blockade, things that can lower left ventricular end diastolic pressure, you know, treatment of heart failure, treatment of hypertension can all decrease infarct size. Uh, I think this is very, you know, provocative to use a mechanical unloading. Sure. And in my mind, this feasibility study does open the door to larger trials. But really, for me, it's a race against time. So it's whether the delay introduced by placing these mechanical unloading devices can overcome, um, you know, can supplant the, the, the time delay, whether putting it in and getting the unloading, that benefit can override any benefit of a delay. So as you know, in the trial, those that got randomized to the unloading, their door to balloon time was 25 minutes longer. So um, again, I think 25 minutes is somebody who prevent, presents maybe three to six hours after their MI may not be incrementally a long time, but if somebody is presenting, say, 30 minutes into an MI, then the 25-minute addition ischemia time, you know, may then counterbalance the benefit of unloading. But I think based on the study, I would feel it's ethically sound to pursue a larger trial. And as uh, these devices become um, more simple to implant, and Impella will ultimately be um, coming out with a nine French device. So as the devices get safer and we can implant them more rapidly, I can see in the future that this is certainly an area that should continue to be investigated. Sure. Uh, no, that was an excellent summary and uh, yeah, a very exciting and evolving area in the field for sure. Uh, moving on um, from medical conditions like cardiogenic shock um, to actually lesion subsets. So talk, us, um, talk with us a little bit about uh, your approach to bifurcation uh, lesions, uh, particularly the ones involving uh, unprotected distal left main coronary artery uh, bifurcation lesions. Um, wherein, um, what is your approach for um, stenting? You know, is it the provisional stenting approach or is it uh, the double kissing crush um, approach, the DK crush approach? Uh, I know this trial was was presented, um, uh, I believe, at TCT um, uh, in 2017. So, um, yeah, if you can uh, talk to our listeners about that study and and what how you practice. Um, revascularizing these this lesion subset. Okay, so um, I first wanted to point out um, 
there was a recent publication um, about left main intervention in the United States using the um, NCDR. And still in the US, left main, unprotected left main intervention is still uncommon. It only comprises about 1% of, of PCI. And there are many hospitals and many operators that perform very few of these procedures. So with that in mind, um, you know, the DK crust study, I think is an extremely important study. Uh, you know, the optimal way to treat distal left main bifurcation lesions, uh, which I believe is best with the two-stent strategy, um, you know, because of the compromise of the osteocircumflex, um, that just based on the studies that have been published so far, my take is that a two-stent strategy should be optimized in these patients. And the DK crush technique uh, seems to be the best way for a few reasons. One, by adding the first um, kissing balloon prior to the left main LED stent, there's a much better geometric confirmation of the osteocircumflex stent. And second, there is uh, it is much easier to recross and do the final kissing balloon because if you are unable to do the final kissing balloon after a standard you know, mini crush that is done as a, a single deployment or as a uh, staged without the kissing balloon in between, um, then certainly the outcomes in the side branch are going to be um, far inferior. And I think it does take a little bit of practice to get this strategy down because the number of steps involved. Um, but when you um, achieve them, the outcomes are, are certainly better. And in addition to doing the steps and the strategy, intracoronary imaging should be used in every one of these patients uh, to assess the outcome in both the LED and the circumflex as well as the, the proximal left median. Uh, so I think those operators that want to undertake this, this lesion subset uh, really need to be facile with multiple bifurcation techniques, but the DK crush um, performance of that is certainly, uh, I think, a must. And um, the operators in this trial, uh, keep in mind, they were all extremely high volume operators, um, over 300 PCIs a year, and also a very high volume of, of less main intervention. And, and, you know, just putting that in context of the opportunity that most U.S. operators have, I think for those um, individuals that are um, really not um, comfortable with this lesion subset, then they could certainly be referred to a, a center where treatment of left means is more common. Terrific. That, that was a terrific summary. Thank you for explaining that so well for our listeners. Um, the next trial that I want you to discuss is um, the trial that Manos um, um, published in Lancet, and, and, and that was, um, you know, for that of saphenous Grafwin interventions with uh, a bare metal stent versus a drug eluding stent, um, the DIVA trial. Um, sure. I, um, I'm still amazed <laughs> that uh, we know so little about uh, saphenous stain graft degeneration and reasons for, for PCI failure. And this DIVA trial, I think, points that out. Um, you'll probably recall the controversy that went on in the era of first-generation drug-eluting stents. Sure. Uh, when we saw pretty poor outcomes with both sterolimus and paclitaxel stents, and there was some concern that 
um, you know, drug-eluting scents were harmful in vein grafts. So now fast forward 10 years later, and uh, we're not seeing any um, harm, but we're not seeing any clear benefit of, of using drug-eluting scents in this uh, particular lesion subset. Uh, we know that event rates are extremely high, that uh, some of the repeat revascularizations, many of the TVRs may not be TLRs, um, uh, but I think it's, it's uh, the one lesion subset where I almost think we need to go backwards and do some basic, um, you know, pathophysiology studies, like serial imaging studies, to find out the mechanism of why failures are occurring so that we can design better trials. Sure. I think, uh, you know, DIVA trial is, uh, you know, more one-year outcomes, but we also have um, ISAR cabbage five-year outcomes, which paradoxically showed lower TVR with drug-eluting stents early, but then twofold higher TVR late. So again, um, either this is uh, we're not having neointimal suppression because maybe the drug dosing is not sufficient in veins, maybe capillary leak is worse in veins. Um, promoting very early neoatherosclerosis. Um, it, it could be a number of things, but I think something like a serial OCT study uh, would be quite helpful to understand that. And um, I'm certainly interested in um, trials that are going to look at whether we should, um, you know, approach native vessels more often for vein graft failure. You know, when in the lifetime of a vein um, should it be sacrificed for the native vessel? Um, and maybe in the future, avoiding um, vein grafts altogether with more arterial conduits for surgical revac. Those are all thoughts I have, but it's, it's a very interesting lesion subset. Sure. So, I mean, do you, in your practice, then, if a vein graft is, is down, um, end up revascularizing the native vessel? Or do you still go after the vein graft? Um, What's, what's your strategy? Yeah, I think for, for chronic vein graft occlusion, certainly the native is always my approach. Um, in the setting of STEMI, when the vein is thrombosed but acutely, if there is a native option and a non-petito option, then often I would prefer that. Um, it, the the decision is a little more difficult when you have uh, degeneration that can be treated with a single stent, particularly if it's applying a a native vessel that's complex to treat. Um, but certainly in some circumstances with recurrent vein graft failure, I've looked to revascularize the native. The things that um, make me a bit concerned would be, um, it's unclear if you revascularize the native, what you should do with the vein graft. Do you leave it open? Uh, do you close it with a coil, do you wait for it to thrombose on its own, in which case it could still embolize the native vessel. So there's still, in my mind, a lot of questions about um, the strategy of the native vessel, depending on the patency and disease state of the vein. So um, time will tell, I guess, when the trials are, are performed, what happens uh, to the natural history of those veins that are, are not intervened on. Sure. Perfect. Terrific. Um, so moving on from uh, lesion subsets to actually physiological assessment of lesions, uh, and I'd like for you to discuss um, 
the preferred method uh, in your practice uh, when you want to assess the hemodynamic or the physiological significance of an indeterminate lesion uh, angiographically? Um, which method you, do you utilize? Is it the instantaneous wave-free ratio or is it the fractional flow reserve? Because uh, clearly the advantage with utilizing uh, instantaneous wave-free ratio and is something which I've incorporated into my practice um, you know, recently, like four to six months ago, um, is that you get an instantaneous number and you don't have to worry about administering adenosine uh, in the cath lab or mixing adenosine or you know, starting an intravenous infusion. Um, like it was performed in the FAME trials. Um, so talk to, uh, just talk to us briefly about, yeah. you know, those, uh, those methods for assessing physiological significance. Sure, sure. Well, I, I would say I think um, over the past few years, we've certainly had an uptake of use overall of uh, either IFR or FFR, uh, both for culprit and non-culprit stenoses and for making decisions in, in multi-vessel disease, which I think is supported by, you know, the registry studies, uh, one of which uh, the, the Define Real was discussed in our summary paper. Um, but, you know, since Define Flare and IFR Sweetheart were published, I'm very comfortable using IFR with a dichotomous cutoff of 0.89. Sure. Some... Uh, some operators who still like a hybrid algorithm using hyperemia with cases that are um, close to the cutoff. But I'm pretty confident that, you know, particularly among patients with stable angina, you're really, um, you're really talking about, um, you know, if there's subtle differences in the um, threshold for PCI, I mean, IFR in general will result in lower rates of PCI than FFR based on those two studies, the randomized trial. Um, but if, you know, the comfort level is there, um, in my mind, you don't lose anything by deferring the PCI by IFR. If the patient remains symptomatic, you know, certainly you could always readdress it. Um, and we certainly are using IFR for uh, the acute MI, so you don't have to give hyperemia for any patients with, you know, contraindications to hyperemia. We still do both in a sense that um, uh, we want to keep facile with both both techniques, and you know I think it does take some experience really monitoring closely for uh, wire drift and really checking your measurements, um, normalizing pre lesion, checking, doing uh, pullback is often important to really understand where. Um, uh, if it's lesion specific or vessel specific, meaning sometimes there's serial lesions. So there's a lot of subtleties to interpreting these results that you learn more and more about as you do these techniques more often. Um, I'm really looking forward to some integrative, integrating angiographic and hemodynamic systems. Um, I know Philips is coming out with a system where you can put down your, your IFR wire, do a pullback, and then have an overlay with the angiogram of exactly where along the course of the artery you have decrements in your IFR. So I think a hybrid anatomic physiologic algorithm will help us understand where we should stent, which lesions we should stent. Um, but until that time, I think we have to uh, really um, use the information wisely and um, and also check our post-PCI, IFR, and FFR. Um, as you know, um, 
the recent registry showed that a lot of times at the end of our intervention, we are still leaving the, the vessel with anemia. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, well, this has been um, sort of like a rapid fire round of questions for you, and you've been exceptionally terrific. I'm, I'm going to end the interview by asking you to discuss um, two STEM technologies. Um, and, you know, for the listeners, uh, you know, just if you could differentiate what is a bioresorbable or bioabsorbable vascular scaffold versus a bioresorbable polymer. Because um, these are two different technologies within the stent technologies, and um, uh, we we yeah, clearly yeah, sure. um, you know we we clearly have trials for both of these. So if you can go over that um, to end our podcast, that'll be terrific. Sure, um, you know the desire to make iterations of our second generation drug loading stents is probably now about a decade old and really started in the era of first-generation stents where we were seeing a lot of um, late stent thrombosis. I just want to uh, remark that um, it's amazing that the five-year outcomes of the current generation drug-eluting stents show stent thrombosis rates that are well below 2%, actually in the sure. 1.3 to 1.5% range. Absolutely. So that's our benchmark. Okay, so with that benchmark in mind, there's still a thought that even with the very biocompatible polymers, if a stent can be polymer-free over time, that is if the polymer can bioabsorb and break down into CO2 and water, that if you're left with a bare metal scaffold, there could be some advantages uh, to the patient in terms of endothelialization. Maybe not in long-term endothelial coverage, but maybe in endothelial function per se. Sure. Although some OCT studies have shown maybe earlier endothelial coverage, I think when we're talking about late events, it might have to do with the endothelial integrity. So I'm still on the lookout for a signal that these stents with the bioresorbable or absorbable polymers could show um, superiority in certain um, very high-risk subsets, but that's yet to be seen. I would say the data so far supports non-inferiority. As you know, in the U.S., we have Synergy approved. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there will be more to come. I think when using these devices, you have to be um, cognizant of the time period over which both the polymer and drugs absorb or are eluded because uh, there may be differences in efficacy in these devices if, if the elution is too quick or the absorption is too quick. And, um, you know, Pioneer 3, which is a, a, um, the Boomistent, which is a Sirolimus bioresorbable polymer set, which is currently in Phase 3 trial. The Phase 2 trial showed uh, um, it failed to reach non-inferiority for late loss. Uh, the late loss was nearly double in that stent. And again, uh, so I don't think we can make class generalizations, first of all, with all of these novel devices, which is going to make it a little more difficult to to prove their, their um, benefit compared to our current generation stents, but I still um, believe we'll, we will see some new combinations coming out that will be very interesting. And then with respect to bioabsorbable vascular scaffolds, I'm among um, individuals who believe it is really a need in our field. And, um, you know, of course, now that the durable metal stents are so thin, uh, a lot of people feel like 
you know, we're not going to do better. And there's a lot of risk involved in in um, developing new products, a lot of financial risk, and, you know, and patients have to participate, and it will take years to know whether these devices are going to be non-inferior or potentially superior. Um, but I do see, you know, young people, we see people coming back to the lab year after year, decade after decade, um, at times with, you know, numerous um, durable metal alloy stents, sometimes in multiple layers, multiple configurations. And um, I, I do think we'll need to progress to a, a fully absorbable stent. And there are a few now in trials that are um, approaching uh, right under the 100 micron um, uh, in thinness. And I know Abbott's going to be uh, testing theirs in um, peripheral artery disease. And in addition to the PLLA ones, which have been the most widely studied, there are some new iron-based scaffolds uh, that would corrode into, be broken down into hemosiderin. These can be very thin, like 70 microns. So we're going to see some novel um, composition of, of bioresorbable scaffolds, and I'm really excited about you know the next five to ten years in that area. Yeah, no, excellent summary, perfect. Uh, thank you for taking on that question. I know it's been a controversial area in the in the field, so and you've explained it beautifully. Um, well, there we go. Thanks a lot, Dr. Abbott, for your time. Um, and uh, for answering all these questions, going over the vast majority of the paper, actually, which is a very well-written paper, I urge our listeners to actually read this paper because it provides an excellent summary of all the developments that have occurred in the past one year. Uh, thanks once again, Dr. Abbott, for being with us. Okay, and thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments, and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.